You're listening to Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is the men's fashion director of Bloomingdale's, Justin Berkowitz. Justin and I spoke about his epic career in fashion, his time at Details working with Eugene Tong, and the evolution of retail happening at Bloomingdale's. Justin Berkowitz, how you doing? I'm well. Thank you, Jeremy. How are you? Great. You're on the show, which I feel like is is definitely a long time coming because there's a lot of people, I think, from the industry and around the industry that I had somewhat met or interacted with, and you were one of the, the details, original dudes. Indeed. Those are kind words. I feel like you're holding me in esteemed company that I No, it was, that I it, was you in a good and, way. it was you and Eugene. Yeah. Yeah, and Matt Martin, another great editor. Of course, yeah, yeah, excuse me. Yeah. But it was always you guys, like the Three Musketeers, like cruising down, and Aww. all the like Tommy Ton shots. Do you remember that? <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah, It was a very nice time. <laughs> yeah. I don't think other people remember that, but I appreciate that you do. Oh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> you'd be surprised. This is like, it's funny, because a lot of people, they'll joke about things like Tumblr, where like everyone used to use it, and obviously like the service is not as big as what it used to be, and everyone's migrated to Instagram. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, this is when like search hashtags. Mm. Go go deep on that Justin Berkowitz hashtag. Yeah. Let me know what you find. I think it's the Eugene Tong hashtag. <laughs> We're kind of just blurry in the background somewhere. Well, anyway, but I appreciate that. It's it's great that you're on. You are the fashion director of Bloomingdale's. I am. I'm the men's fashion director specifically. Okay, we have, we have a few people over here that have that role uh, across the company. Well, the men's fashion yes. director of Bloomingdale's. Yes, you, it still has. You still have director in your title, which is kind of a big deal, especially when it's like one of the most prestigious department stores in history. <laughs> um, well, I want to, want to chat about you, your background, what, what, you've been, what you've been doing over here. Because I think a lot of people's backgrounds in fashion, sometimes it's like, oh, I was kind of grinding it out here and I jumped to here. But I mean, you like went to Columbia. I did go to Columbia. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. Let's, let's jump like back. super far back. Okay. We should probably go back farther than that. Oh, yeah. Because I owe a lot more to this like sort of interest in fashion uh, to other things, not necessarily school. Oh, no, please. Yeah. That's, uh, where are you from? I'm from Texas. I grew up in Dallas. Wait, really? Yeah. I thought you were an East Coast guy. I am not an East Coast guy. Interesting. Yeah. I got out of Texas as quickly as I could. I didn't play football, so it was like good to depart quickly yeah it's tough to excel in texas without playing football well there's like you know general interest level that's kind of important for that kind of thing yeah um but my mom's in the retail world my parents my grandfather was in the retail world so sort of this interest in fashion kind of started then really wait what were they doing uh my grandfather uh ran a small specialty store in texas it was called frost brothers um and my mom is still to this day a buyer for neiman marcus so I've sort of grew up with like WWD sitting on the counter and like Vogue and GQ sitting around. Wait, are so, you kidding? No, 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 no. So like a lot of where my interest in this kind of came from was like reading basically or looking really? at magazines. Yeah. So like at what age? I mean, so if you're, if she's been a buyer that whole time, I mean, was this like since you were born? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I probably started reading that kind of stuff, like industry stuff. I don't know, in middle school or high school and was fairly actively engaged in like the literature and sort of learning around it i Mm. guess from that perspective so you know was obsessed with magazines obviously as every fashion obsessed kid is yeah because this is all really pre-internet in which you don't have a a google search to learn everything in two seconds totally yeah very pre-internet yeah i was obsessed with like everyone that was a fashion editor and all their names i knew all the fashion directors names 
you know, Whoa, like was was very into the whole the whole thing. That's deeper than just like knowing a couple photographers. When you know yeah. the people who helped <laughs> orchestrate the shoot and the look, sure, and yeah, the, yeah. you know all of that. That's yeah. that's that's deep. I was a super nerdy kid. It was like the thing I was into. Well, I wouldn't say that makes you nerdy. Makes no. you makes you knowledgeable. Sure. Yeah, I'm sort of defining the two as one tied together. <laughs> okay. I don't look nerdy as a bad thing. So you're 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 buried into fashion books. Yeah, the family is literally in this industry. So yeah. like, w- wait, what's Thanksgiving like? <laughs> Probably like it is for anyone else. Not as crazy as you think. Okay. Yeah. So there's there's not like you know too much discussion on you know knits or no i think clothes no i was raised it's it's a it's a profession you know it's a calling it's not necessarily something that you're fully ensconced in all the time right mm. there can be a little bit of separation between work and life that's good to know yeah you get this tip and you're into this yeah and then how, how does this grow and develop? Uh, well, so it sort of developed into me knowing I wanted to go to school in New York so I could try to experience some of what it was firsthand, mm-hmm. which is what led to the Columbia thing. Um, Columbia's a liberal arts college, so obviously the concept of majoring in a fashion sort of related yeah. thing was not uh, going to be possible. Um, but I also was kind of obsessed with art history and sort of obsessed with the idea of image creation and sort of ideas around that. So I'd taken some classes in high school, loved them. And that's what I went to go study at Columbia. I liked this idea of like being able to talk about what you see and sort of being able to explain to someone who doesn't know about that thing, why that thing is important or what makes that thing look like that thing or what makes it good or what makes it bad or what makes it influential. Right. Um, I mean, this is more of very much a connect the dots thing. Cause I mean, I'm someone whom a lot of times I'll look at something and I'll say, Oh, this is great. And people are like, oh, what did you like about it? And I usually don't have an answer. Yeah. But I'm like, well, I just felt this and it felt right. Right. And that's something I've wrestled, you know, like I love Vermeer, right? But yeah. I can't tell you that much about Vermeer. Right. I yeah. know that he used expensive paint. <laughs> yeah. I know, you know, the Dutch neo, like classicist, whatever yeah. thing. Yeah. And I know he came from Delft. Yeah. And he was kind of poor. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You know, and I think... This is really interesting because if you're able to connect all of these dots, you get a far much more rich appreciation and also ability to explain this to others. Because at the end of the day, what is it? What is a coat then? What right. is a piece of yeah, art? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I think at the end of the day, our job as retailers is to be able to explain why we're buying something, yeah. why it's important, why it cost what it cost, sure, and why it looks the way it looks. Yeah. And so I think a lot of the things that I studied in college, while I wasn't necessarily studying a coat or you know a shirt, I was studying a painting or architecture, led me to be able to do that better. Yeah. You know, you said painting and architecture. Mm-hmm. What what were the things that you were really into? Because I think <laughs> if you go from if you go from Dallas, I mean, because right. here's the thing: Dallas has actually pretty fantastic art. art it does. It, do you know what it didn't when I was growing up? That okay. really got developed a little later. I'm assuming you're referring to like the National Sculpture Center. Yes. Or, yeah. Which is amazing. Yeah. But was built maybe 15 years ago. Oh, oops. Yeah. So, I was I mean, living in New York then. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but so, I mean, you come up to here and I mean, what you have the Frick you have, I yeah. mean, what is it like when you come to a new space like this and it's almost like information overload and you're also trying to, you know, study yeah, in school. Yeah. I mean, it was super intense. There was, you know, imagine being 18, moving to New York, going to school and having everything that New York has to offer, whether that is, you know, a museum or nightlife or culture, like lots of different things. Oh, yeah. So overwhelming, I think, is the best single word answer to that question. Yeah, I mean, I did. I came to New York when I was 19 and I definitely let a few people believe that I was related to the Costco family. Because people were like, oh, Kirkland? And they're like, oh, you from Costco? 
<laughs> I was mostly fighting some of sand rumors, but you know, whatever. sure. Yeah. And I was just, like, I was like, uh, yeah. Okay, cool. Does that mean I get to go in? You know? <laughs> so, I mean, what, what are the artists that you're into at that time? Uh, I was kind of obsessed with Indian art and architecture at the time. Why? Whoa. I don't know, but I was like, so this portraiture, isn't... I was really into. Okay. Um, I was kind of obsessed with like ancient Roman art and architecture. It really depended a lot on the professors, to be very frank. Interesting. So I was interested aesthetically, but I was really interested in the people that were talking about the thing. So mm-hmm. um, those two topics I thought were super interesting. And then there were some really great modern art professors um, at Columbia at the time. Brandon Joseph was a guy who was part of this group called October that like had sort of an influential journal and uh, was doing a lot of critical thinking around modern art and sort of postmodern critique. Um, and they happened to also be very engaging lecturers. So they led for more interesting time spent in a classroom setting. Oh. Yeah. Which was nice. Really, really nice. And then also having the opportunity to look at a slide of something or talk about something in a classroom and then be able to go to the Met or the Frick or the MoMA and sort of see that thing in real life. Yeah. Made it a much more valuable experience. Yeah. Would you say that you're someone who you process things more verbally? Like, like for my, as an example, for myself a lot of times I'm trying to get to my thought, you know, hence why I have a podcast that I'll have to speak for a while to get to that. And that'll help me understand it more versus some people are more the silent observer and understanding. And if you're, you know, if you're in the world of, you know, art history, you have basically all these other people communicating to you. Like, how are you processing all this stuff? Um, Honestly, I'm, I'm not less verbal. I need time internally to think. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm certainly much more visual. I am not good at retaining information that's purely spoken to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's because all that stuff, you have all these different like brilliant minds who operate specific ways. Yeah, for sure. It's like, how do you document? How do you understand that? Yeah. So this entire time, fashion (laughs) continues in your brain. It does. So the other reason I wanted to move to New York was because obviously this was the epicenter of fashion in America, right? Yeah. So the other thing I did when I was at Columbia is I took full advantage of the fact that I lived in the city. Yeah. So I basically, starting my sophomore year, interned for anyone who would take me. So, you know, I spent uh, time with like Paper Magazine. I spent time with Rachel Comey. I oh. spent time at Prada. And then I landed at Harper's Bazaar sort of my junior and senior year. And they sort of shepherded me around to different departments over the course of like a year and a half. Well, what are you doing as an intern there? It depends on the place. At Bazaar, it was working in the fashion closet and like working with like tons of samples. So mm-hmm. kind of getting a great sort of entree into like this like sort of beautiful world of designer fashion and actually not seeing it an image, but seeing like the real thing, you know, mm-hmm. touching it, having an appreciation for fine fabrics and sort of great, great construction. Um, so, you know, things like that. And then working with some of the stylists, like helping them, you know, organize samples, that kind of thing. You're an intern, right? So you're, yeah. you're not necessarily doing the most exciting work but you're going to appreciate some really beautiful things around you um and then i got really lucky and i spent sort of my last year there working with christina o'neill and anna maria wilson christina o'neill is obviously now the editor-in-chief of wsj yeah and they sort of took me under their wing and i became sort of like the fashion news fashion features intern so they had a lot of sort of dedicated news coverage they were launching their website or sort of working to grow their website at that time so basically helping them with like photo research and story ideas and, and that kind of stuff, which was super fun. And I felt very lucky to kind of be working in this nice environment of people who really took the time to sort of educate me and let me stay and sort of build a relationship with them. Yeah. Do you, I always ask this because, you know, a lot of people, once they have a job, they're a little bit more conscious to other people who are in a, you know, that role. Mm-hmm. Has that process, you know, the experience you've had being an intern shaped how you think of interns now? 
In some ways, yes. I mean, I took the job that I was doing as an intern very seriously. I felt that the task that needed to be accomplished was very important. Sure. If I didn't do it the right way, something was going to be, that was going to be a problem. Yeah. Um, Like Michael Haney, he came on and one of the things that he had said, because, you know, he was an intern at one point and he talked about how he had so much love and respect for the job. And like the thing he kept asking and, you know, Graydon Carter even asked him, is like, how, how bad do you want this? Right. Like, how much do you truly care? Yeah. And it wasn't a hazing question. Yeah, yeah. It was a question of like, is this something that's important to you or are you just here because you don't have anywhere else to be? Yeah, so I, I think I, what I'm trying to say is something to that level or that sure. effect. No, um, I never had that concrete conversation, but I think yeah. you can also give your sort of level of dedication uh, awareness to the people around you in other ways, yeah. in nonverbal ways. Well, and it sounds like you were pretty good at your job because you got a job from it versus... Yeah, good enough that they let me stay around. <laughs> yeah, versus like, you're an intern and, oh, you know what? It looks like the internship's over. Yeah. Nice to see you. Yeah, no, I got, I got lucky. I mean, I graduated in 2008, which was not a great time to be entering the workforce by any means. Yeah. Um, but they took pity on me and they hired me as an assistant, like in whatever open assistant job they had. So I bumped around for like three months to different, I was going to Bailey's assistant for a week, like helping, I was her second assistant or whatever. Um, you know, I was a market editor's assistant for a week. Like they kind of just pushed me into whatever space they needed to fill Yeah. so that I would have an income because I obviously couldn't stay here without uh, earning at least some, some kind of money. Sure. Um, and that led to sort of like my real first job um but felt very supportive in terms of what an environment could look like where if you put in the work that the team will sort of give that back to you in other ways yeah because this is kind of like grad school sure (laughs) no i mean it i mean i think that you know from other people that i've spoken to who have you know you really kind of climb the ladder you get a a firm understanding of all the aspects of jobs because i think a lot of people really glamorize fashion and that it's oh, it's just this, or it's just sitting in the front row when like a lot of people are like, no, like if you want to be a buyer, do you know how to use Excel? Like, do you know how to understand like pivot tables? Like, do you know like the nitty gritty of this stuff where a lot of people, it's just like, do I get verified on Instagram? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I never really had the glamorous sort of perspective on fashion because I did have slightly more of a realistic take from a lot for a lot of reasons. Yeah. But was sort of always intrinsically thought that sort of the level of work you put in will result in a good success for you. Basically. Yeah. So what's the first job then? Uh, so I was sitting next to an editor at Bazaar. She said, oh, hey, my friend Taylor Tomasi Hill needs an assistant at Teen Vogue. So my first job was at Teen Vogue. I ran the fashion closet there. So sort of all the things that you saw in the hills were very true. There was an army of interns and, you know, I basically had you know, 25 young men and women that sort of helped me with keeping everything organized there. Lord. And I ran their fashion closet for about nine months. Um, it was a very intense, intense situation. Yeah. Um, I was basically assisting not just Taylor, but sort of their entire fashion team. So at that time, it was like Aya Kanai, Gloria Baum, uh, a bunch of other people who have gone on to do some really great things. Nine months after I was there, Taylor left to go to Marie Claire. Ironically, I think there was sort of a turning point with her. There was a meeting she had to come in early for, and I happened to come in early because I knew she was coming in early and she needed something I wanted to be of service. Sure. Um, you want to do a good job. And in hindsight, now I can sort of see like, oh, that was probably the moment when I sort of cemented my my place in her vision of this is someone who wants this. Yeah. So I moved over with her to Marie Claire and started working in accessories. And sort of the the key element there was 
I had the the very fortunate opportunity, having been as in working as an editor for you know a solid ten months, uh-huh. um, to start covering the watch market, which was awesome. Um, so I got to start going to Basel and got to start going to SIH, which is a watch show in Geneva. Oh yeah, I'm very and So wait, how old are you when you first go to Basel? Like twenty five, probably maybe twenty six. That's big. Yeah, it was huge, and I sort of didn't really understand how important it was. Well, I, I think I now kind of get that it was a really big deal that I got to go, especially um, SIHH, which is invite only. Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 for sure. Like it was, it was a big deal, um, and I felt very, very lucky to get to do that, and felt even luckier that one night I happened to be seated next to Eugene at a dinner that IWC was hosting. Eugene Tong. Yes. Okay. I had always really admired him, sort of via the icon that he is through certainly early street style images and things that i'd read that he'd said um appreciated his perspective yeah we got to talking at dinner had it sort of a great night together um and sort of a nice introduction and basically by the end of the evening you know he said are you interested in menswear we don't have a job open now but i'd love to call you if if we do when we do if you'd be interested in talking um lo and behold about three months later the market editor job opened up there, um, which was obviously a very coveted job because there was a great magazine and you got to do some really interesting things. So he called me and I met with, with the team there, which was really nice, um, and moved on over. Something interesting about this is you're speaking about these events as if you were just kind of in the right place at the right time. It's often how I feel. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just want to kind of like publicly call that out. I don't think that's true. It's great that you have the humble nature and attitude, but you don't really get these opportunities unless you've been able to prove yourself earlier. You know, I mean, yeah. and this, especially, I mean, I, I'm a perfect example. There's so much of fashion stuff that I'd kind of tried here and there. Mm-hmm. And you realize that this is a lot of work. And this is also about showing up to, to get that work done. Yeah. And that's cool. You get to yeah. go to a party, but you still have to be here tomorrow at six. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. And so you're, obviously exhibiting an extremely hardworking, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, there's some sort of famous thing about luck being partially being in the right place at the right time, but also being prepared to accept it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a big element of what we do. I think you sort of, uh, if you haven't done your homework, you sort of can't get the grade at the yeah. end of the day, right? So there is absolutely an element of effort that goes into all of this, but I will also very honestly say that I do think a lot of this happened to be very fortunate circumstances, and I will um, accept that and be happy that that's the way it happened. I guess. Sure. How? What do you? What do your folks think of this? Because you go, you go to school <laughs> to, you know, to learn about art history, right? And now you're the market editor of Details Magazine. Well, they didn't really know what a market editor was. Okay. And they were kind of like, so you're going to Paris to go see fashion shows. That sounds cool and all, but like, are you making any money? Right. Uh, you know, can you support yourself? Right. Uh, That's always, it's like, well, this is, I can support myself, but you may not think this is enough. Right. <laughs> That's usually the <laughs> there conversation. There was some of that conversation yeah. for sure. <laughs> um, you know, and they certainly had questions around like what my career trajectory was. I, you know, I was in my late twenties at that point and right. you know, I went to Columbia. So half my friends were investment bankers or, you know, whatever, doing other things that were very uh, lucrative. So they were very open. I think that they were very kind in understanding that I was getting really great experience that could someday lead me to something that could be bigger um, or more definable in terms of what maybe the rest of the world might see as a a wanted job. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's good because I think so much of obviously people's careers too. I mean, there's, 
sometimes you have like, I did this career to show someone else that I could do it. Like it's like a, a, yeah. a vengeance career <laughs> <laughs> versus, versus the career that's, you know, you really do need and rely on the support. Sure. Of, say like family to keep you going. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, yeah. that, that's, that's fantastic. So yeah. you're at details. Yeah. And this is where, this is where I first kind of understand the lore of you guys <laughs> no lore just you know maybe a story and so um yeah so i started at details and i think what's a market editor real quick okay so a market editor is and i think this is sort of a job that doesn't really exist anymore because it's not really a job that's as necessary anymore to be honest you're correct the question that comes up often is do you miss working in editorial when i say the job i left isn't a job anymore so yeah. i don't know i can't say if i miss it sure um because it's something else now yeah um a market editor basically is responsible for knowing product that's available on the market. So that means basically if a designer has shown a coat, you need to know that that coat exists mm -hmm. and how to get it, right. for lack of a better way of saying it. What that really meant for me specifically was uh, when I started at Details, I covered the New York market. So basically every designer that showed something in New York, whether that was on a runway or in a showroom or you know in the back alley of the street, whatever, sure. I had to know where it was and how to find it. Um, and I also covered Paris. So I, you know... <laughs> Had that, to know sort that's of like ninety percent. Uh, I mean, you have Milan. You know, that's, there's Milan. There's but, Japan. There's there's some other great things out there in the world. But okay. it was a lot for sure. Yeah, for sure. And basically, what that really means is, you know, we're, we at magazines worked with a lot of stylists who did freelance work for us, and they would say, sure. you know, my concept for the story is rugged Americana with a mix of Italian tailoring. Or whatever. That's mm -hmm. a, a very sort of blank blanket idea. Sure. You know, and we're shooting Brad Pitt. Right. So sort of my job then is outside of what the stylist says, specifically what they want to a procure the thing specifically that they ask for, whether that's like, you know, look 36 from YSL or whatever, but also to give them everything else that I think they might need. Right. So basically sourcing all of those things, whether it's, you know, a Western roper boot or the perfect pair of like slim but not skinny denim jeans or, you know, the right M65. Right. It, you know. Which is, you know, as we're sitting here, you know, and you're saying this, this is an extremely tall order because it's not so much. And I think because there's a, a bit of a, a Rosetta Stone moment that has to happen with you, because not only do you have to interpret what you think is good for the magazine, but also what's going to make the stylist happy, but also what's going to make the talent happy. And, you know, if someone says, I need that green jacket, you have to understand that that green jacket may mean x when right. for someone else it means y totally so yeah. i think the magic of details to be very honest was that you had three people who were really on the same page and sort of matt and eugene had worked together for a long time and had sort of known mm -hmm. who each other was and sort of what their perspectives were i happened to walk into the door having read that magazine for you know the better part of a decade and been fairly obsessed with fashion and fashion culture mm -hmm. and happened to have dovetailed interest in a lot of ways like was obsessed with Dries Van Noten was obsessed with Margiela was obsessed with a lot of the same things that those guys were obsessed with and so had that sort of like innate love and understanding uh while perhaps not to the same level of what a common theme of what was good quote unquote yeah because one person's good is another person's awful let's be honest <laughs> that's true um nothing is good or bad anymore right our goods <laughs> happen to align yeah <laughs> um so that made made that job both fun and easier right i won't say it was easy but it made that part made it easier for sure well because i mean you guys can work together yeah yeah and you know we happen to have personalities that aligned we had styles that well we're not 
similar or the same aligned. It just, we all kind of brought different things to the table. Oh, you guys had a look too. <laughs> I mean, I, serious. I remember, like I was saying, you know, I'd see you guys, I don't know whether it's pity or, you know, New York fashion week or whatever. And it's like, Oh, that, Oh, that's the details crew. The shade. <laughs> it's interesting. I had did not really know that that was so much happening, but I appreciate that. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. You see them at every airport wandering aimlessly, dragging their bags without wheels, carrying their smartphone power bricks, looking for a wall outlet to charge their empty devices. All of them so sad or angry, muttering to themselves, there has to be a better way. One of them recently came up to me saying, help me, sir. My phone has died. My bag has no wheels. How can I be as dope as you? I said, it's simple. I took the gentleman's smartphone and plugged it into my bag. He said, sir, what magic are you wielding here? I said, well, I'm just using my away carry-on suitcase with the built-in USB battery charger. It's the perfect carry-on with super sturdy polycarbonate shell, four high-quality wheels so I can glide through the airport, and also backed with a lifetime guarantee. He said, uh, how can I get this? I said, no worries. Just visit awaytravel.com forward slash blammo and use promo code blammo at checkout to save $20 off your first purchase. He took back his newly charged phone and said, this is so simple. I'll do it for my smartphone right now. I'm going to visit awaytravel.com forward slash blammo and use promo code blammo at checkout to save $20 off my purchase and I'll never be sad again. I said, good on you, man. And then he vanished. Actually, he just got on his flight. That, that's actually what happened. Sorry. So you're at Details for how long? Uh, I was there about five years. Okay. One very sad day in November, we were called into a conference room and we're told that the magazine was closing, um, which was a really hard thing to hear. It was the first time I'd been fired or let go, or I'm not sure what the right terminology is. Right. So I took it personally in a lot of ways based on that with not doing a good enough job, which is mm. today I now sort of understand that that's something a little different, but also personally was hurt because it was a magazine that I obsessed with, adored and loved. Yeah. And I felt like it was a really important outlet in the menswear industry. Yeah. Um, in terms of the voice and the, the sort of person that they were speaking to. Um, so that was really tough. And I was a little freaked out. It was like, Oh God, what am I going to do now? Yeah. Very fortunately, and this is going to lead on to the being in the right place at the right time sort of conversation. I got a text message here from go. someone else I knew, Josh Peskowitz, um, <laughs> yeah. who was my predecessor here and yeah. uh, a dear friend still, basically saying uh, that one of the other fashion directors who was on the team was going to be going on maternity leave and I should perhaps meet with, uh, who is now uh, our VP of Integrated Marketing, uh, Kevin Harder. So Kevin and I had lunch. Meanwhile, I did not know this. Josh happened to be preparing to open his own store in LA. Yep. Amazing boutique. May it rest in peace. Yep. Kevin and I had, I don't know, lunch, coffee. We met a few times, had some interviews and we really hit it off. And I really liked, I've always liked what Bloomingdale stood for because I think there's a sort of democratization that happens here in terms of a level of interesting fashion, but also just some great clothes for guys who need great clothes. Mm-hmm. And was interested in this idea of being the fashion director for a retail store. It was you yeah. know, something that I had aspired to do growing up. I worked for, I, sorry, I grew up with, you know, parents who worked in the retail industry. I, you know, grew up knowing who people like Ken Downing were. Um, and I was intrigued by this job, this sort of creating the voice or the tone or uh, helping source the right product, helping give brands uh, presence on a floor, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a big leap because details, first off, 
your discussion about details, when it shut down, you were not the only person, obviously, that, that really felt that. It was a lot of people were really bummed. Yeah. And I don't know if it was like a Ricky Gervais type closing in which you guys were just absolutely crushing it and then you just walk out while it's the best. Maybe that's, maybe that, if you want, in hindsight. I, you know, but I will was, say, as an editor, I had absolutely no, <laughs> <laughs> no idea how the business was being run. Certainly is a shift to my life today. Sure. So I couldn't tell you. I yeah. don't know. I yeah, think I mean, the writing's on the wall, right? Like, we sort sure. of know what happened editorial and what's happened in the year since. Yeah. We happened to be the first or one of the first that yeah. were really affected by it in a big way. But it was, you know, a lot of people were bummed that yeah. it, mm. it went down. And the good thing is, you know, and this is where it goes into, like, when you work as hard as you're working, when you're creating what you're creating, you just get a reputation. I mean, you didn't even know, you, you know, all these people are like, you know, there's Justin Berkowitz Tumblr pages and stuff like that that existed out there of you. And so that carries. And it's, and it's not just like who you, what you looked like, but what the work that you did. So you arrive at Bloomingdale's, which goes, it's a very wide spread in terms of the type of customer because, you know, details was somewhat narrow, but deep. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Details was narrow, but deep. I think the thing I picked up there was sort of an obsession with product. Sure. Right. And I think while we did shoot a lot of designer fashion and details, we were pretty open to the concept of something that wasn't designer or something that was a lower price point. Yeah. It wasn't, we did not pick things for that magazine because they were from a hot brand or a hot name or because they were hyped. Yeah. Um, And I think that thinking is what I've tried to apply at Bloomingdale's. And I think that's what Bloomingdale's has sort of stood for in a long, for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the knowledge that for me was important to bring to this job. Yeah. You know, from Josh, you know, and obviously you, I mean, there's, there is a strong refinement that's really happened with a lot of the stuff on the floor. I mean, I remember when, you know, Eidos was, was mm-hmm. being carried and a lot of these other brands that, and also they, they had, they had their, they were allowed to exist on their own. I think something that, you know, this is not a shot at department stores or anything like that or retail stores, but some of these stores, sometimes they put everything in a room and it, they just hope that it's all going to exist on its own. Right. But, you know, something like, you know, just from walking the floor at Bloomingdale's, these brands can exist and be in their own world, but still be together. And it's, they're shaped and put around other brands that complement versus yeah. here's a mess of clothes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're working very hard on the curated concept. That's nope. what we tend to refer to that as. It's fantastic. Um, yeah. We've got several across the store. Um, Eidos, we are still doing business with just in sort of a different way. Yeah. Um, we created a concept around what their aesthetic was, sort of this idea of uh, refined Italian sportswear mixed with tailoring. I think what we aspire to think guys who are buying suits want to look like today. Yeah. Um, and sort of elevating what we do around that in terms of price point, in terms of sort of quality and craftsmanship. Yeah. Um, and bringing sort of a new layer of luxury into the store that we didn't offer before at a price that we didn't offer before. Yeah. Which was and is exciting. Yeah. So what do your parents think now? Because isn't it <laughs> weird that, because this is something I'm, I'm like literally processing as I'm saying, isn't it weird sometimes you go away somewhere so you can be different and totally not who your parents are, but at the end of the day, sometimes you find out you're what your parents are? Yeah, I never really had to go away and be different from what your parents are, Faze. I did. I, <laughs> most people do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I would have to ask them what they think now. I think they're happy. Oh, the I'm, the I'm sure. Like, yeah. You know, I can't, I don't know if I can say more than that. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of, you know, conversations at dinner about business and the state of the business and, you know, not necessarily our individual businesses, but right. um, what we're observing 
yeah um how things are changing yeah and i'm very fortunate to have this sort of wealth of resource when i need advice or i have questions or sort of you know what did you do in a situation like this sort of sort of questions yeah um that often you can only really build when you have a mentor in a sort of business situation um that i have uh access to in a different way with my family it's nice yeah i mean justin that's huge yeah that's amazing that's very helpful for sure yeah well, I mean, you talked about how the business is different and changing. Well, I mean, what would you say on how it is different and changing? I think you can't just have a store and have product in a store anymore. And mm-hmm. I think you sort of alluded to that earlier. Yeah. But I think doing what we do, but smarter, doing it better, doing it uh, with more thought to both ideas of experience and convenience, because I think those are the two, to me, those are sort of the two axes that are really important right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those have really changed sort of what we need. I think the internet has changed the retail industry and in that it has made shopping very convenient, mm. but not particularly experiential in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, you can't touch a, touch something that's online. You can't sort nope. of, you can read about the story about it, but so there's something about hearing the story. I think it's really important. You can't try it on. Um, but you can get it to your house in three hours. Yeah. Which is kind of magical, right? Yeah. And you can also find a lot more, which is makes it incredibly convenient. Yeah. It's definitely a double-edged sword in that sense because I think, there are a lot of brands that I know I never would have heard about if yeah, it wasn't for the internet. For sure. I mean, you know, you'd mentioned Japan earlier. Japan, yeah. good lord. I, I mean, <laughs> where do you start? <laughs> yeah. I mean, almost every, you know, every time I see someone wearing some clothing brand, I'm like, man, that's awesome. And they're like, oh, I got it in Japan. You're like, yeah. dang it. But it's the internet, so you can you can find it too. You can find it, or you can find a proxy who will find it for you. Yeah, <laughs> which is which is like kind of a blessing and a curse because so much in what people you know miss and, and they don't even realize that they miss is like the relationship you get to build with a store. Yeah, and the fact that they're going to show you what's best for you, and a lot of times, like my idea of what's best for me is like you know let's jump to the proxy thing, right? Right. I would proxy like old this is like way before visvim was in the united states and like oops i didn't realize that i'm a small you know in the u.s is not a small in japan indeed it is not and it's tough to get your money back on a proxy thing that just took three weeks to get shipped to you from some guy who waited in line yeah well this is size one two three four so i don't know what you do with that yeah so it's like yeah i mean it was that's that's the thing where it's like, yeah, you you do need a store yeah. that can explain that to you, that can help you with that. You can see it, you can understand it. But you, you know, it's also good when that store is thinking how you're thinking. Yeah, and when I think the other thing is what we try to do, and I think what you're sort of alluding to is that a store is not a building with four walls. A store is people. Yeah. A store is curation. A store is an experience with other people, whether they're sales associates or other customers yeah. um, or other people from the community. And I think that sort of has been the big element of what we've been striving to make better in Bloomingdale's um, and to focus on here because that's sort of the element that will continue to make people want to come to stores. Yeah. Well, I mean, in earlier, you know, I was talking with your colleague and the events and stuff that you guys do. Yeah. I mean, we've done a lot of new things to sort of make this feel, uh, feel resonant for our customers. Mm-hmm. Um, one has been uh, the launch of this concept that we call the carousel. Um, and basically, it's a rotating pop-up shop that changes out every two months. Mm. And it's a fully curated concept around all the different departments in the store. And it's sort of given space on the main floor around a central theme and bringing basically the concept of boutique shopping into the larger scale of a department store footprint. 
right? which is super cool. It gives us an opportunity to work with a lot of brands that we would never work with um, yeah. in terms of what they are in terms of scale or sort of reach. Yeah, because uh, I think that's, you know, just to, to add on to that, I think a lot of people don't realize that some of these smaller brands, it's not that like department stores didn't want them or retail stores or whatever didn't want them. It was always the fact that like, oh, well, this brand makes 30 pieces, right? you know, and some of these stores order 3000 pieces. Right. And yeah, so yeah. to, to make, you know, to be able to have these people be in this larger store, I mean, yeah, well, I mean, yeah. even beyond that, like I love this brand because they make amazing shirts, Yeah. like, but we can really buy five of those shirts. Yeah. Like <laughs> that you can't really put that in a store like ours because it gets lost very quickly. Right. Yeah. But yeah. in this sort of curated concept idea, we can say, Oh, we're going to work with, I'm giving an example, post Imperial. We did mm-hmm. this great uh, collaboration with them. I'm sort of obsessed with their designer. I think he's amazing yeah. for a concept that we had in July and August um, around Africa and the Lion King. But you know, we could buy three shirt styles from him and suddenly they had this elevated space where we could show them in the shop. Mm. Um, they had context. They made sense. We're working with someone who's working with traditional, you know, Nigerian dye techniques. Yeah. We can talk about that on the floor. We can use science to speak about it. And we can really present that product in a different way. And we can event around it. So we can have him come in, bring his friends in, do something sort of cool with a creative sort of generation idea and make it more than just three different styles of shirts on a rack. Right. Which I think that is the experience part that is what we're so focused on right now. So we're doing that in the carousel in a big way um, yeah. and putting it out more doors and really learning a lot too. I think that's the other thing that it's important to sort of keep in mind. You know, we, we'd really never done something like this before mm-hmm. because we're a company the size we are sort of learning logistics around that, how we can really work with these brands that are super small, how we can have a guest curator for every concept and sort of integrate their thinking and sort of their favorite things and their sort of aesthetic appreciation into it. Right. Um, how we bring in sort of the, uh, eventing aspect of it, how we use social media to amplify that, how we make sure that we're marketing in the windows correctly at the same time, sort of all these little elements that as a fashion director with this company, historically you've touched, suddenly they become more important for a smaller footprint in the store and faster turning. So it's been an, an interesting learning experience, I think for all of us, right. um, because we've, you know, had some big wins and we've had some, some opportunities to learn some, how to handle some things better. Yeah. Um, and I think the best thing to me is, is that as we've continued to do this, we've done it about a year now. Yeah. Um, we launched it last September, ironically with Eugene Tong. He was our first guest curator. Um, that must have been an easier text was, to say. That was easy. <laughs> <laughs> I knew the five brands he would want. It was yeah. Very, you know. Um, but as we've done that, I think we've also felt better about it every time we've done it. Right. We've walked into that shop and we said, okay, this feels tighter. Okay, this feels tighter. Okay, yeah. this feels tighter. I think to expect that it's going to be perfect the first time out is really unrealistic. But I think as we've honed it, we're feeling better and better about it. Yeah. So being a company the size that we are, that also means now we have to start iterating it, right? So we're expanding to more doors, which is super exciting. And we'll be in six doors for the holiday, which is awesome. We started out in four and get, we get to continue to do more of it, which is the other sort of nice thing. Yeah. Everyone that works on the fashion office team here is is pretty product obsessed. They all really like what they like and they like being able to find some cool things, right? Yeah. That's why we work in fashion. And this has become a really great way to sort of do more of that, which is been so fun yeah i mean one thing that i just want to stop and say like i'm definitely really inspired and refreshed by the amount of humility you're exhibiting here because i think you know and and even then and i've 
chatted with other people in the past and sometimes people are like, everything is amazing and nothing, you know, and you're just like, no, nothing. You can't, no. Like, yeah. that's not, that's not the case. Well, that's not life, I don't think. No. Nothing's, everything's ever perfect at once. Sometimes so many people, all they want to do is focus on everything, like, just like these big wins. Mm-hmm. And what I find more these days for myself is that people want, you know, especially customers. And if you think of fans and advocates or whatever you want to use of your brand, people want to be on a journey with someone versus only stand around when they're the biggest thing in town. Right. And I think it's really exciting and refreshing to hear you talk about like the refinement process yeah. of this whole thing yeah. versus we did this amazing thing and we're amazing. Right. You know, so I mean that that's that's really cool. Well, thanks. I, I think I, I don't know. That's to me the honest truth, and I also no, think it's, it's great. Yeah, uh, you know, I think it's unrealistic to put out in the world that anyone is perfect, yeah. or that anyone could launch something new in a perfect way. Yeah, you know, I think we were happy with the first way we did it. We weren't unhappy, but we've continued to be happier as we go along. For sure. Ironically, we were talking about Tom Ford earlier, and it's sort of you just made me think of a quote that I was obsessed with when he was doing a lot of the press about nocturnal animals. Um, fantastic film. He, it was a fantastic film. Jeez Louise. Um, but he was talking about sort of culture and the way we tend to appreciate wins and losses, and the way we tend to appreciate your emotional response to having a good day or a bad day. And basically, he was saying something to the effect of, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but when you're a kid, you're not really taught that it's okay to have a horrible morning and a great night. And that the sum of that can be better than just one or the other. Um, And you're sort of taught to talk about the good things. Yeah. It was just, it was a really nicely phrased thing that I thought sort of spoke a little bit more about what is the reality of the human experience. Yeah. Versus this sort of gloss. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, as a side note, I'll, I'll try to find that. that, I'll try to find that. I'm sure I can find that. I'll email it to you. Yeah, I know that that's, that's awesome. With other things that's happening, all the stuff that you've been talking to me about, who's mentoring you throughout this? I mean, because it, you, you definitely have this, you were talking about all the things that you've been learning here. Like, right. Who are these people that are helping shape? Honestly, everyone I work with is yeah. the short answer. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, the longer answer is uh, Kevin has been a huge, a huge part in that. Mm-hmm. Um, he worked at Bloomingdale's in the fashion office for a number of years um, mm-hmm. and has taken on this new role that's about sort of connecting marketing to product in a way that we've not really ever done before. Mm-hmm. So he's been a great shepherd, I think, with a lot of teaching me about how to do it and do it in this environment. Yeah, um, We have a great GMM. His name's Dan Lepo. He's also product obsessed. So that's made sort of that element of it and product that's right for us as a store. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have a really amazing team of buyers and divisionals um, and assistants. And we have a company culture, I think, that has taught me that the right thing to do is ask the question of everyone. If you have an idea, put it out there. Ask, what do you think about this idea? Equal opportunity questions. (laughs) Pretty much. Pretty much. Um, So... I find that very helpful because I use that as learning opportunity, right? So, you know, I want to do X, right? I, I'm the fashion director. I've got these crazy ideas. Like, you know, sure. can we try this thing? You know, and I've really learned, like, you create a sounding board of people you trust who've been with this company for a long time or have been in this industry for a long time. They know what works. They know what doesn't work. I very honestly will say that when I walked in the store on the very first day, I did not know. Yeah. But I've learned to use them as, you know, I'm talking to this person about this thing. What do you think about it? Yeah. What are the potential pitfalls? What are the potential successes? Right. And that has sort of been, I think, the best way for me to learn. 
you know, the other nice thing about retail, to be very honest, is we have a report card, right? We have a sales number at the end of the day that we're supposed to hit. Yeah. Um, and that is, at the end of the day, also an opportunity to learn. Like, you can see what is working, what is not working. Using some of that data and what we do, I think, is actually very important in helping us guide what we're going to do next in some ways. Yeah. Not in every way. But that's sort of the other element of it, I think, that's important for the education process. Right. That's awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Justin, this was, this was a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Blamo is edited by Brendan Finn. If you like the show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast or send us an email at info at blamopod.com. If you want to know more about what's going on in fashion or menswear, or just want to meet other people, join our Slack group. It's a private chat group online where tons of Blamo listeners chat about everything. Just send us an email saying, hey, I want to join the Slack and we'll get you in. All right, we'll see you next week. Thank you.